Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. A few years ago, I was sitting in the staff club, happily having a Friday night beverage, and Derek Abbott came over and said, Dave, can you explain Iran? And I thought, uh, in context to what? He goes, well, like, why are they the way they are? And why don't they get along with Israel? And why do they sometimes sort of get along with Israel? And why don't they get along with Saudi Arabia? And why do the Americans have such an interest? I said, well, sure, you buy me a whiskey and I'll have a go at answering. So Derek wandered off and came back with two Iranian postgrads, which sort of upped the stakes markedly. And thankfully, whatever answer I gave on the night must have been okay because they liked it. So today, Derek's going to ask me all those questions again. So today, it's going to be Blind Insights, hosted by Derek Abbott. I'm joined today by Derek Abbott. Thank you for joining me, Derek. It's a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be interviewing our guest today. Thank you for joining us, the guest, David Oldie. Cognitive dissonance, cognitive dissonance. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be okay. Oh, dear. It's a pleasure to have you here, David. Cognitive dissonance. Thank you. I guess we'll open up the floor to yourself, Derek, to ask uh, ask the question. I guess establish even perhaps why. Why you wanted to ask this question. Why are you here? Yes, so just the audience might be a little bit confused what, what, why me as an engineer is here on a show about politics <laughs> and asking questions about Iran. Well, there's two layers to that. First of all, the thing that triggered me to talk to you about this in the first place was um, I had just seen on the TV at the time that on the news that Netanyahu got up on stage and did a little spiel about Iran and I don't know if people remember this and uh, had this huge bookshelf covered with a cloth and whipped the cloth away and showed this huge stack of CDs and said we've recovered these from Iran and this shows they have programs that are against Israeli interests, etc., etc. So he did this huge uh, spiel about why Iran's such a bad country and then in the same breath made it sound like they're almost friends with Saudi Arabia. And I thought this was a little bit counterintuitive to me. At the time, it seemed counterintuitive to me because, as I said, I'm not a politician, but uh, uh, I'm just an engineer, but uh, it seemed to me naively that uh, if anything, um, Iran ought to be a country that's closer to Israel than Saudi Arabia. And the rhetoric there seemed to be inverted. It seemed to be the other way around. And the reason I say that Iran is in some sense closer to Israel is on, on a number of levels is uh, let's look at it. Let's look at the situation. Saudi Arabia... Uh, has doesn't have any Jews in its population. Iran does. It has indig- indigenous Jews that have been there for hundreds of, of for centuries, and uh, it's even got a Jewish member of parliament in in Iran. Iran has um, you know a fabulous education system, uh, an university education system, just like Israel does, and. And so on and so on. And from my own childhood, I remember stories about Saudi Arabia because I had, um, I have a, a few uncles that were all officers on ships, 
and uh, I used to get stories uh, about their adventures in other countries. And I remember when it always came to Saudi Arabia, they always had uh, sort of shadowy stories to tell. And one of the stories that sticks in my mind is that one of my uncles was on a merchant ship and they had to make an emergency stop in Saudi Arabia. There was an unplanned stop for, for whatever reason. I can't remember. But they stopped in port. Saudi Arabian police came on and inspected the vessel and noticed there were Jaffa oranges on board from Israel <laughs> as their cargo. And what did they do? They took all the oranges and tipped them all overboard. And so the, the, all these little oranges were all floating in the water. Uh, and so that was the disdain uh, Saudi Arabia had for Israel. Uh, and, and you hear stories, you know, of people travelling to Israel and saying, now don't get your passport stamped there in case you ever go to Saudi Arabia or something like that. They'd, don't show them that you've been there. And, and so the, so there's this whole whole backdrop of things in my mind, you know, from growing up. And it seemed to me that, um, you know, Israel and Iran should be friends and uh, not Saudi Arabia, it should be the other way. So it, it seemed to me like an inversion. And as an engineer, uh, I'm interested in phenomena that invert because I, one of the things I study in engineering is complex systems. And um, usually you get things like Simpson's paradox. I, I, I don't know if people are aware of this, where with where things can statistically flip depending on how you measure your populations. And um, and in a, any complex system, you can get reversals. Let me let me give you a, a silly example, just so people got a rough mental picture. If you've got a bag of nuts, uh, mixed nuts. You think that, hey, uh, it, the big nuts, like the big Brazil nuts, are big and heavy, so they should sink to the bottom naively. And that's because you're thinking in a linear fashion. The real world, however, can be a bit nonlinear. And when you shake a bag of nuts, as you all know, the big Brazil nuts come to the top. There's a reversal. There's a flipping direction. So gravity should do one thing, <laughs> but the motion does the other. Exactly. And now you talk about that. I always thought it was because the little ones must slip down more easily. That's one. That is one way. And to that's look sort of because of the motion. And there's right. a, there's complex uh, interactions going on there. So a simple linear way of thinking doesn't work answer anymore. your question because there's and too it, many variables. And it's the same. It's the same with politics. Uh, often people think of politics as right wing and left wing. But that's a very linear way of thinking. Uh, it's just uh, thinking of the extremes of politics as being left and right of a single line. But I think the reality is today is that people aren't on that single line anymore. People might be left or right wing fiscally or they might be left or right wing socially and so on in different mm -hmm. Aspects. And yeah, we're so now in a circle and it, you could have multiple points on the circle all for the same person. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a left or right position on a single line. It's left or right positions on multiple, multiple issues. issues. Mm -hmm. And so you can't describe it either on a single line or you can't describe it on a two-dimensional graph. You probably need an n-dimensional graph with uh, a multi-dimensional space to characterise 
people's political affiliations. And so you've got all these little dots on an in-dimensional space that characterize everybody's um, uh, political affiliations. And something you may have noticed, I've noticed this, is that the the loony left-wingers and the loony right-wingers... Are more like each other than that, anyone uh, else. ...that kind of believe in conspiracy theories and things might actually both vote for some loony populist that comes along, mm. even though they're supposedly on oppo- opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's because they're not really on opposite ends of the spectrum. They're actually a part of this complex n-dimensional space that I've given you a mental picture of. <laughs> and in some of their parameters, they're actually a lot closer than what you think. I'm going to give and you another visualisation for this. Think <coughs> of a pizza where the lovely toppings have not been spread evenly. <laughs> so if we get a wacky distribution of olives, that tells you something. Yes, yes. And if there's pineapple on it, well, we know we broke the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I want, when I came up to you in the staff club asking you about Iran, this is what was in the back of my mind. And I had no idea why there was this uh, sort of a seeming, seemingly counterintuitive mm. change in allegiance, um, a difference in allegiance. And, and, and I asked you what your, your spin on that was. Yeah, and this is a really good place to start unpacking Iran and Saudi Arabia and Israel to try and make sense of the three because over time we see the context change so dramatically and more often than not people just don't have enough history to understand the context. So if we if we jump back just after World War II going into the early 1950s, we're in a very different world in the Middle East. We've got Israel as a very new country and it's trying to get close to America. We've got the Saudis selling oil to the Americans, but still kind of just doing their own thing. We've got the Iranians have done okay. They've come out of the colonial period in the early 20th century, and they're doing all right. And interestingly, by the early 1950s, the Iranians are on the verge of democracy. And one of the most major things their parliament wants to do in the early 1950s is they're sick of being ripped off by the Brits and Americans where all the oil in Iran is being drilled and pumped by British and American oil companies. And instead of the Iranians being able to develop, and they're already looking at the Saudis going, well, look at the Saudis. They're being you know, drilled and pumped by the Americans and Brits too, but they're getting a much better deal than us. And it's because it was all under control of the royal family and the royal family was making a deal that benefited the royal family and the royal family were already starting to buy off their own population. Whereas in Iran, the Brits and Americans were extracting so much wealth that one of the first really controversial and powerful things that the Iranian parliament wanted to do in the 50s was to nationalise oil, which would have taken the Brits and Americans out of the mix instantly. And suddenly the Iranians, with their incredible heritage of you know, education, language, maths, would have then also had money. And imagine what that development curve could have looked like. As opposed to Saudi Arabia that had sand, holy sites and oil, Iran had universities, advanced mathematics, an incredible history of complex civilization. So if they had the wealth from oil, almost anything was possible. So the CIA and MI6 engineered a coup 
and Kermit Roosevelt was famously filmed saying, I've taken down the Iranian government for less than $100,000 American. Not so very good if you are the Iranians. Imagine what that feels like. Mm. To think you've just been screwed over so monumentally for less than $100,000. And then the Americans and the Brits put the Shah on the throne and create a ruthless authoritarian monarchy pretty much worse than anything the Iranians have had for centuries, even worse than the Saudis. Mm. And the Americans go, well, we like this. If we control Iran, we get access to more oil. If we control Iran, we have more leverage over the Arab world. If we control Iran, we get to have a huge say on what happens in this whole region. So they start pouring money and weapons and influence into Iran, where by the early 1970s, you know, Listeners, if you remember what it was like seeing pictures of the green zone in Baghdad in 2003 onwards, you know, full of Americans and Western contractors, well, that was all behind concrete barriers with body armour. The green zone in Tehran was Americans in particular living in the most beautiful bit of Tehran and basically advising the Shah's brutal state to guarantee compliance with America. At the same time all this is happening... We get to the period of the Kennedy administration in America and Kennedy promises the Israelis security in their region. So you've suddenly got in a period where the Iranians are under control, the Israelis are told they can pretty much get away with pushing the Arab world as far as they want to go and that the Americans will quietly back them. And the Saudis making enough money, they sort of don't care what happens next. <laughs> but also wondering what the implications will be if the Israelis kick off. And of course, as the 60s go on, we see what happens when the Israelis kick off, and that is the Arab world gets handed its testicles in a bucket. But in a world where the Americans have guaranteed the security of Israel, but at the same time have Iran more or less under control. So our first context was... Israel is relatively autonomous. Iran is relatively autonomous. Saudi Arabia is relatively autonomous. By you know, the end of the 50s into the early 60s, Israel's got guaranteed security backing. Iran has been bought and paid for and put under a brutal regime. And the Saudis are going, this is not good. So I think how we did this on the Night in the Staff Club originally was every time I did a chunk of context, I let Derek ask a next question. <laughs> so, Derek, next question. So, so I found that very interesting that what you're basically saying is the situation has born out of the Americans and the Brits yep. exploiting Iran for its oil. And then America backing the Israelis and saying you've got a security guarantee. Yeah. In a sense, these three countries no longer function like autonomous entities in the region. They've actually been destabilised to a dangerous extent by how much they can use American cover, use America to back a ruthless regime, or use America to export their core product. I for the Saudis, the only thing they've really got going is export of oil. They don't have the background in science. They don't have the ability to be capable actors in the region in the way the Iranians had been and the Israelis would become. 
So that does look like an interesting, plausible scenario. But in my mind, is、uh, surely there are other confounding factors that、uh, mesh into this. Yep. And、um, what about the fact that Saudi Arabia has a royal family and Iran doesn't? There's、well, the, again, the Iranians got given one, so to speak, in the Shah. Yes. So really, we see some pretty big things happen after these initial steps.、Mm-hmm. So if we look at the Saudi royal family, we need to remember that the Saudi royal family gained power by supporting the Wahhabis, the most radical and fundamentalist sect within Sunni Islam within Egypt, or sorry, within Saudi Arabia. If they hadn't been able to persuade the Wahhabis to back them. The House of Saud would not have ended up with power. So, by backing the House of Saud, what the Wahhabis get is that the Saudi state will progressively become more fundamentalist and more radical, and that the version of Islam it will export to the world will be more fundamentalist and more radical. So, what we see as the oil wealth starts flowing is the Saudis paying to put Wahhabi-trained imams in brand new Saudi-funded mosques. All over the developing world, thus taking Islam to a more dangerous level of fundamentalism and radicalism that is less accepting of modernity, less accepting of women having any role, less accepting of social mobility, less accepting of democracy. But I, I wonder how much of that is rooted in perhaps Saudi royal family being nervous. About its own existence. Oh, they're paranoid about, from day one about being defensive. Yeah, and so could it be that there's a certain defensiveness there about being a royal family, and perhaps that isn't seen as being very conservative、uh, form of Islam, and so there's a conservatism race.、Uh, The Saudis are trying to say, "Hey, we're more conservative than, <laughs> more religiously conservative than Iranians," and the Iranians are trying to project themselves as being more religiously conservative. And it's a form of self-preservation of the Saudi royal family to project this image of being very religiously conservative. Well, here we get into sort of where the subtleties between the two countries become, you know, big, big differences. So for the Saudis, they've got, you know, the holy places in Islam within their country; they're under their control. So they always want to look pious, immaterial of the oil money rolling in and the royal family living the debauched lives anywhere they can on weekends. The Iranians are in a different situation because for the Iranians, they're Shia Muslims. So they don't have the holy sites, and from a Sunni perspective, they're seen as having strayed from the true path. We add on top of this that the Saudi royal family have made a deal with the Wahhabis, meaning they can trust that within the mosques, what will be taught is the orthodoxy of conservative Islam that says the royal family should be in charge. Whereas what happens in Iran is you have the West put the Shah in. You know the Shah likes fast cars, fast women, bikinis, alcohol, everything that doesn't make him look like a good Muslim conservative, and that as he shuts down politics in Iran, politics moves to the only place it's allowed. So if you look in so many countries where you have an authoritarian regime, where does your political opposition hide and build and plan? 
within churches and mosques because it's the only free space. It's the only space left that is culturally so significant that it's just ever so slightly beyond the reach of the state. Mm. So we, you know, we get politics moving into the mosques in Iran. If we look in communist Europe, it's the Catholic Church in Poland out of which you know, the resistance against communism grows and the solidarity movement you know, can meet safely in the back rooms of churches. In Indonesia, we get a similar thing to Iran. When the Suharto regime is making all political activity illegal across Indonesia, then political ideas have to move into the mosques and the churches of Indonesia. So in Saudi Arabia, the mosques help maintain the system because the elite are paying off the Wahhabis to have their support. In Iran under the Shah, the mosques become the place for resistance to grow. So in 1979, when the Iranians finally explode out of the mosques and go, enough, no more authoritarianism, we want a state that, you know, the, the, the rhetoric is very much of a, a, a revolutionary Shia Muslim democracy. And it's just, if you've grown up in an authoritarian state, you've lived in an authoritarian state, when you gain power over it, why would you do democracy? What you know is authoritarianism. You just do an, you know, an enlightened form of authoritarianism. So it's this idea that if all people know is authoritarianism, why would they be able to leap from that straight to democracy? And as we can see in places like Turkey where there's a constant to and fro between authoritarianism and democracy, as we can see in Indonesia, you know, it was the late 1990s when Suharto was thrown out and it's taken them a solid 20 years to move towards stable democracy. Well, Iran had had a level of authoritarian brutality and got a system founded on pious Islam that was not open to warm, fuzzy, secular democracy. It was open to being a different kind of state. Mm -hmm. But it meant the Iranians fought for a revolution to get rid of the Shah, but only then to end up with, not quite as bad, a religious-based regime. But at least this aligned more with the morality of the place that people had some autonomy, which was in the mosques. So you've talked so far about how the Saudi-Iran relationship has played out over the years, but then there's the other third figure, that's, that's Israel. Can we talk more about how Israel to Iran and Israel to Saudi Arabia has played out and why it seems that Israel is aligning more to Saudi Arabia than Iran. Absolutely. And for here we probably need to add a fourth country. We need to add Egypt. Ah, yes, the Muslim Brotherhood. Precisely. 1921? 20-something. Uh, Again, I would have known the date because I taught it literally the day you asked me this question. But now <laughs> I know it's 20s, but damned if I can remember the exact date. But really the significant thing is... The Saudi family are willing to push Wahhabism. They're willing to push a really hardcore, conservative, radical. And people might be confused why I'm saying conservative and radical or fundamentalist and radical in the same sentence. But if you take fundamentalism far enough, it becomes radical. And that's really what the Saudis and the Wahhabis did. Egypt went down a different path. Egypt got the Muslim Brotherhood, which was largely made up of 
you know, professionals like teachers and doctors and engineers who were pious Muslims, largely Sunni Muslims, in a country ruled by the Brits and then became independent and then very quickly taken over by the military. So they were once again a force for change emerging out of the mosque was the only place you had any autonomy. And the Muslim Brotherhood didn't start anywhere near as radical as the Wahhabis and didn't want to go that extreme. But the more they were persecuted by the military regime in Saudi Arabia under Nasser, the more they become radical. So we then get two forms of radical Islam emerging in the Arab world. Saudi-sponsored Wahhabi version of Sunni Islam and the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood form, which is more about empowering the general population than just dominating them. And am I right in thinking that the reason why the Saudi Arabians are nervous about the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood became uh, almost as strict as Wahhabis, but with the difference that yes. with the difference that they were more democratic and didn't believe in royal families. No, they believed in an imam was the most important person, and a scholar of wise people. Well, you know, scholars and wise people were more important than someone who said they had right through birth. So you get a fundamental change that from the Muslim Brotherhood's perspective, the Saudi royal family are apostates. They're Muslims behaving not like Muslims and therefore can be taken out. So the Muslim Brotherhood potentially becomes very dangerous to the Saudis and in a sense, out of the Muslim Brotherhood, we get the beginning of all the people in Saudi Arabia who become the people around Osama bin Laden when al-Qaeda emerges in the late 1980s in Afghanistan. We get this move out of a, a young Saudi man like Osama bin Laden to go, my royal family are apostates. They can legitimately be killed. But for the moment, if I make that noise at home, I'm going to die. So I'll off go off to Afghanistan and fight the great Satan, fight the Russians, but I'll make sure that me and everyone around me is skilled up to eventually go home to throw out our apostate ruling elites. And what is fascinating at the end of the Afghan war is all the North Africans and the Saudis go home with the aim of chucking out their elites who they see as apostates and almost in every case the Americans provide those brutal Sunni regimes with the intel they need to destroy the members of Al-Qaeda and other organisations coming home from Afghanistan and the ones who survive largely end up fleeing back to places like Afghanistan or to London. So London, in having wonderful refugee policies in the UK, takes on some of the most hard-boiled and radical, you know, Sunni radicals in the world who their own regimes in North Africa and the Arab world have tried to kill. Mm. So we get another angle to the mess. Now, we were trying to put Israel in the picture, but we needed to understand Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood and the other movements for Sunni radical politics before we get Israel. So Israel's sitting in the middle of this, initially going, hey, American-run Iran and us are the outsiders, but together have the history of universities, science, orderly systems around here. The Arab world has oil but isn't very orderly. We'll probably do okay if we kind of, we don't have to be friends, 
but my enemy's enemy is my friend. So where Iran is outsiders and Israel is outsiders, there is at least the capacity to see that for both of them, the real problem is the Arab world. But then 1979 happens, Iran has its revolution, and Iran gets a ruling elite of Muslim scholars and hard-boiled politicians who've taken on the mantle of Muslim scholars who go, well, we now hate all of you because you've all been involved in screwing Iran over. The Arab world has let it happen, even though it was fellow Muslims. The Israelis have been more than happy to help the Americans. The Americans are the ultimate Satan of the lot. And you have the Iranians going, well, fine, if we can't trust any of you and you're all awful, guess what? We'll support terrorists worldwide. We'll support terrorists in the West. We'll support any of these organisations in Saudi Arabia or the Arab world that want to kill their own country's elite. We'll burn all of you. And we can guess how well that is going to end, can't we, listeners? So, of course, the next thing we get in this is the Iran-Iraq war, where it's quite incredible. Everybody backs the Iraqis to destroy the new Iranian regime because the new Iranian regime upsets the apple cart of the Middle East more or less being under control to be used and abused and exploited to pull oil out in exchange for wealth that elites don't spend on their people. So the Russians provide huge amounts of weapons to the Iraqis. The Americans provide huge amounts of weapons to the Iraqis. The Germans provide huge amounts of weapons to the Iraqis. Very interestingly, most of the artillery the Iraqis buy, they buy from Sweden. So what we see is everyone goes and Iran setting the Middle East alight because we've all mistreated Iran so badly by not letting them have their autonomy, have their agency and define their future means we've got to put them down before they destabilise everything. So we end up with a war for most of the 80s that bleeds Iran and Iraq horribly. But in bleeding them horribly, the two people who benefit most from this are the Saudis, because they're the ones who can survive it economically, and they're the ones who pick up most of the oil business as the Iranians lose the ability to sell oil overseas because of sanctions, and the Israelis, because the Israelis have the ability to do the intel and get the information to set the Iranians up, and in the long run, once Iraq goes truly crazy and invades Kuwait because it needs money, and it goes, well, Kuwait's nearby, who's going to go to war for Kuwait? Let's just roll in and take everything. Well, unfortunately, it was the beginning of the New World Order, and the world actually said, no, that's just not cricket, chaps. And the world comes together and masses in Saudi Arabia, and despite the Wahhabis are sitting on their hands going, you are letting hundreds of thousands of infidels bring weapons into you know, Saudi Arabia near the holy sites. Oh, but it's okay because you're going to kill the Iraqis. Hmm. So we get this greater destabilization where the Americans will tolerate the Saudis and even fund their survival because, well, suddenly we need to take out the Iraqis because they stomped Kuwait. And we need to put the Arab world back together in some reasonable form because guess what? The Iranians survived the Iran-Iraq war against all odds and have demonstrated to be some of the most capable and resilient people and regime on the planet. 
So then we're in the early 90s and we have a Saudi Arabia who goes, we might hate America, but they back our survival. You've got the Israelis going, ooh, Iran's even more dangerous than it used to be. And now the Saudis believe they've got a similar security guarantee to us. Hmm. So as we move through into the area where the Iranians do what is the most sensible thing you can do in this situation, start trying to develop nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, going, if everyone's going to mess with us, guess what? We're going to do everything we can to ensure mutually assured destruction. So they don't want first strike ability. They want the ability to make sure the Saudis and Israelis don't do something insane because they believe they're under an American security umbrella. And if I was an Iranian leader, I would have done exactly the same thing. So we end up in a modern world where the Iranians have to push to a point, which then pushes the Israelis to the point and the Saudis to the point where the Saudis and Israelis go, I don't like you, I don't trust you, but your enemy is the Iranians. Therefore, let's do business. Because the only way we're going to get to control the region to do as we please is if we take the thorn in the side of you know, our agency away, and that is to somehow take the Iranians out. That's very interesting, Dave. Um, I want to take you back to your train of thought uh, where you were starting to talk about the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. I think you didn't follow that through. No, because it's sort of a sideline to Iran. And is is the, the the is where that fits in, is that because, am I right in thinking the Muslim Brotherhood was in support of Palestinians? The Muslim Brotherhood were in support of lots of things that pissed the Israelis and the Saudis off. They were in support of the Palestinians, which got the ire of the Israelis, but they were also in support of removing apostate regimes across the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. So what they wanted to do was bad for everyone. And we need to put this in context. If they had got control of Egypt relatively early on, like if they'd been out of seize control in the 60s, the Egyptians had the most highly trained military in the region on paper with huge amounts of Russian weapons because Nassau was a believer in pan-Arabism. He wanted a relatively secular Muslim world where oil wealth would be poured into development and he wanted to pull all Arab countries in under this banner, which meant you know, Nassau didn't like the Saudi royal family, neither did the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Muslim Brotherhood essentially, if they'd come to power in Egypt, would have turned Egypt into a major player who wouldn't have been pro-Iran, but neither would they have tolerated Israel's presence or Saudi's royal family. So the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood, even though they were constantly being persecuted in Egypt, they were also constantly from there able to train people and support people to potentially destabilise the Palestinian territories, make life harder for the Israelis. The Iranians, of course, get in on this game in the 1980s by you know supporting Shia militias in Lebanon and supporting different Muslim Palestinian organizations so both you know the Iranians and the Israelis see the Palestinians as both a problem and as a weapon to be used against different people the Muslim brotherhood sees the Palestinians as a weapon 
the Muslim Brotherhood sees oppressed Arab populations across the region as weapons to be used against elites in different countries. So the Muslim Brotherhood is so dangerous because it has a pan-Arab viewpoint that is not about making sure the current elite continue to rule like the Saudis, but saying in all countries what we need is a revolution to be proper good Muslims and at that point we can work out what we're going to do with the Israelis and with the Iranians who don't fit the world. Where does uh, Qatar and Yemen fit into all this? Yemen's really interesting in that Yemen is Egypt, Vietnam for America or Afghanistan for Russia. Mm. The Egyptians' role in there to squash it with huge numbers of military advisors. And it really is just to show they can be a proper regional player. That if they can take Yemen, they get control of some important waterways and they can show that you know we are ready to be a major player. Fascinatingly now, we know that this all happened soon after the British SAS was brought back into existence and that all sorts of ex-SAS people and current SAS people were given a furlough and went off to Yemen to train the Yemeni tribesmen to bleed the Egyptians out. And that we now know that the Israelis were providing these SAS operatives in Yemen with logistical support to bleed the Egyptians out. So we know that Yemen was actually this amazing, brutal proxy war with Saudi fingerprints all over it, British fingerprints all over it, Israeli fingerprints all over it. And it's the reason why to this day, you know, Yemeni tribesmen without a lot of kit can mess up the Egyptian and UAE military without major problems because they were being trained by some of the best guerrilla warfare soldiers in the world who'd essentially you know, wrecked havoc upon the Germans for most of World War II and were now getting another chance to you know, light up an entire country. When it comes to Qatar, historically I don't know where it fits and the modern arguments between Qatar and Saudi are really a question of the Saudis are the elephant in the room and the elephant believes it should be listened to even if all it's good is it, you know, trampling things. The Qataris, because they're small, have started making deals with the Turks and the Israelis. And Turkey is another player in this mix. In the same way that Iran can't lead the Muslim world because it's Shia, Turkey can't lead the Muslim world because it's Sunni, but it's Turkmen, not Arabic and it doesn't have the holy sites. But Qatar's realising, well, there's only so much oil left, and we need better relations with the neighbourhood, because otherwise the elephant in the room is going to stomp us. So really, what did we have? Two and a half, three-year basic siege of Qatar, where the Saudis were seriously thinking about paying other people to dig a moat and turn Qatar into an island, and nothing's really been resolved other than everyone's sick of not seeing their families. Because they all are related. All of these royal families that are siphoning off the oil money and paying off their Sunni populations and paying guest workers from the rest of the world to come in and make everything run, really everybody but the Saudis is going, hmm, there's less than 20 years of oil left. Hmm. And even the Saudis are having to go, we can't keep affording to buy off all these young Saudi males to sit at home and do nothing. It costs too much and they get bored and they go and join Al-Qaeda and they realise that we're apostates and we should die, which is not so very helpful for the royal family. That was all very interesting. And to wrap up now, um, 
may I ask you, is there a question I haven't asked you that you'd like me to ask? <laughs> oh, golly. What's the way out for Iran? That would be the impossible one to answer. Well, then that's the question you have. Yeah, going to have to deal with that. Because this is the thing. Iran's got this incredible history. It was a genuine, sophisticated empire that worked in multiple languages, that had advanced math, science and engineering you know, in antiquity. These are people you never count out. This is one of the youngest, most highly educated populations in the world. Oh, to, to, to be fair to the Arabs, though, didn't they have uh, quite a lot of good education in antiquity? Uh, they made uh, inroads into medicine and algebra Absolutely. and stuff like that. They, they did, but the key difference is the Iranians managed to hold an empire together for a very extended period of time. The Arabs squabbled amongst themselves and had internal wars, which is why the Spanish Christians were able to take Spain back. Not because the Spanish Christians were very organised, but because Arab Spain was fighting amongst itself and couldn't get support from North African, you know, Arab world. So Iran has got an ability to work together with a cohesive cause for an extended period of time you know, that is almost reminiscent of the Romans. And its ability to bring other people on board and integrate them in. So, to give it a modern context, you know, Iran now has this young population, highly educated, very sophisticated, that has two problems above it. It has the religious elite that have ruled the country since 1979, who are so conservative and orthodox, they do not want to bend to anything but the world they understand. But perhaps more dangerously, the Revolutionary Guard, the growing military elite they relied on in 79 and they absolutely relied on during the Iran-Iraq war, are now a state within the state. They run heavy industry, they run infrastructure projects, they run all the big companies. The Revolutionary Guard are essentially the state that run the state to get everything done that the, you know, the mullahs at the top of the religious system don't want to deal with. And even if the Iranian population could topple the mullahs, they probably can't topple the Revolutionary Guard because the Revolutionary Guard have been hard, competent bastards now since 1979. And all they know is being hard, competent bastards. Okay, so you're the supreme leader. What do you do? Try not to piss off the Revolutionary Guard too much because they could take the country away from me. Mm. And the last thing I'd be worried about is the young being democratic because I know every time they try that, the Revolutionary Guard will truck in tens of thousands of poor, highly conservative, highly radical peasants to beat shit out of uni students every time there's a protest. No, but what would you do to bring Iran forward to integrate back into the world? How would you do that or are we asking a herculean feat here i think the biggest problem if i was in that role would be to go how can i do anything without nuclear weapons to secure what i do next mm. because everyone has messed with us everyone has lied everyone has intervened everyone has screwed up the amazing position iran was in in the mid 50s of being on the verge of nationalizing oil and having the money to develop in an incredible way that would have used oil 
to leapfrog them, not just oil to pay off the rich. Now, when hydrogen comes along and starts making oil irrelevant... Uh, <laughs> well, this is then potentially uh, fantastic for the Iranians because suddenly the Saudi royal family can no longer pay off all their young males to do nothing. Ah, the interesting thing about Saudi Arabia is heavily investing in uh, hydrogen now. Of course it is because it's, it hires the right people to advise it. Mm. So there may come a point where the Iranians can transform themselves, but how we get to the point where the Iranians can feel safe and how can they back down until they feel safe? Mm. So to me, I cannot conceive of a point immaterial of who is in charge in Iran. Even if, best case scenario, Iran turns into a democracy, they are still going to keep the revolutionary guard as hard bastards because they need them to be hard bastards. So. Sorry, uh, let's take off your hat now, Dave. Uh, we're taking off your supreme leader hat of Iran, and now I'm now making you the head of the Saudi royal family. Okay, mm. what do you do now, uh, as head of the Saudi royal family, to bring Saudi Arabia forward to normalize relations and uh, bring peace? How, how how can you do that? It would strike me the only way they can pull this off is if they convert to things like hydrogen so fast that they can keep paying their population off, but they need to pay them off in a new way. Mm. They've got to stop paying off the extended royal family so they can have Lamborghinis and gold taps in the bathroom, Mm. and they need to pay them off with education and opportunity. So there's been a move under MBS, the crown prince, towards education being more significant, but it's too slow. You know, they need to move much faster and this means perhaps losing the support of the Wahhabi sect but in doing so gaining the support of their population. Mm-hmm. The fact they're closer to Israel might mean they can pull this off. The fact the UAE's now got good relations with Israel means multiple more things between the Arab world and the Israelis are now possible. But it would seem to me that if you were someone very powerful in Saudi, what you need to do is buy off your own people in a new way and simultaneously offer a security guarantee mm. to Iran and Israel that we all have to live here. And if we light each other up, we can all lose everything. Right. Okay. Um, now you're not the crown prince now. I'm now turning you into the premier of Israel. What do you do as the leader of Israel to bring Israel forward to normalise relationships, um, bring peace, how? I would think that one of the first things you have to do is accept you can't run the, pal- run the Palestinian territories as an open-air prison. Because if you keep pe- treating people like criminals, all they can do is fight back. If you don't let people have a normal life, then they have to have an abnormal life. And that abnormal life will make your security worse. And improving the situation for the Palestinians would immediately get lots of conservative Muslims to go, hmm, I have one less reason to hate your country. Mm. And it might provide a basis to then to start talking about how mutually assured peace could be found between Israel and Iran. Mm. Where Israel desperately wants to stop Iran having functional nuclear weapons or it loses its greatest advantage, first strike. Mm. And it doesn't want to lose first strike because it's, you know, Iran is an outsider in the neighbourhood. Israeli Israel is an even smaller outsider in the neighbourhood. 
even though the only place they all have ever known living is in the neighbourhood. But thanks to Western manipulation, the neighbourhood has been destabilised. So oil having no value will cause a rethink. And how they use the residual wealth to guarantee each other's peace would be the biggest thing in the world. But I just, I can't conceive of how that kind of pragmatism is going to emerge in a place where grudges are so old mm. and, and where the scars are so raw. Mm. So what if we put you in some kind of UN hat now and you want to basically de-arm everyone? Would that even be a, a, a plausible, smart route? Okay, this is where with everything we've learned about MMT and the podcast in the last year, I would say that if every sovereign currency issuing power was willing to make things to change the Middle East, to educate every population, to give everyone some degree of autonomy and agency and reward everyone from stepping back from you know, brutal security risks. Mm. That's, you know, that's a massive undertaking of decades. But if you say to everyone, everyone's going to win, provided you all take a step back from destroying each other. And you know, we're going to keep giving you the next prize. We're going to keep giving your young people something to do that's more valuable every time you step away from having problems with your neighbours. So rewarding? So de-armament is in some ways the first step, but yep. it is rewarded. But incremental disarmament. Like sure. if for every step you get a prize, we'll give you some prizes just to start with because the more young people believe they can have a productive life, that they can get an education, then apply it, then make money and raise their family with security and the joy of knowing they can save money to go on holiday and do things and not be afraid of the future, they then start changing their minds. They don't need to think about being radical. They can think about building a nice life. You know, the best way to persuade people out of violence is to give them safety and give them things to do that are meaningful mm. in that safety. You know, Derek, years ago, you know, did you write a paper on it or did you just do the thought experiment of building an island for the Palestinians? That it would be actually a cheap way to solve the problem. Um, yes, I I did a thought. Ex uh, it was I didn't actually publish it. I, okay, I remember uh, reading. It, I, I yeah. just put it on my website. Yeah. I said, "What if we hypothetically reclaimed land yeah. and just made Israel bigger and made a Palestine and just made Palestine bigger and yeah. well, you can even make Israel bigger if you want to yeah. as well. And it would all cost less and money." And it would, and I added it up, and it would cost a lot less money than yeah, all the cost of all the wars added up. <laughs> uh, I mean, I wasn't suggesting that one does that. I was just there's other was, ways to think about. I was it. just using it as a way yeah. of illustrating that there are ways to think about things and to Bad solve problems. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, and just mm. probably a last thing on having this impact. Yeah, you know, in the end of the Mediterranean, right near all these countries we have the Leviathan natural gas field. Biggest natural gas field in the world. But everyone's afraid to start developing it because how do you do it without starting a war? Mm. And yet if we could say, right, you know, let's have a conference about how the wealth will be distributed in some even or fair way, but all the work will be done under, you, under you know, UN contracting where the UN don't get to stick their snout in the trough. They run it, but they don't get rich off of it. They don't get mm. to pull money out of that to run other projects. 
but it gets run by people who are neutral. No one from the region is involved in the drilling and the pipeline building and the moving of the natural gas. Even if everyone agreed that that money was the starter to changing everything, what would be the implication? Mm. Probably huge. Now, interesting, it's mainly been Australian uh, resource companies who've been asked to do all the surveying and analysis mm. of the field because we're seen to being far enough away from everyone to maybe be a slightly fairer player. So, Dave, it seems to me a, a take-home message of this whole conversation we've had is that we are not really, haven't really pointed any fingers at either Israel, Saudi Arabia or Iran as such. The real finger that we have pointed is at uh, Western meddling. Yeah, the real of, lesson is blowback. Of uh, Middle Eastern affairs uh, to grab at their oil. Yep, the real lesson um, is blowback. So what you're saying is it's all our fault, actually. Well, the, the real lesson <laughs> is saying if you do something now in a place that has a different conception of time, mm. the damage you cause now doesn't end quickly mm. because this is a place where time, things are remembered in a way the West doesn't. Okay, so if it's the West's fault, um, now I'm going to change. Uh, you've, you've been the supreme leader. You've been the crown prince. <laughs> you've been the leader of Israel. And I'm going to... Put Biden's hat on you now. Uh, you're 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 now the president of the USA. Uh, you've you've caused this. Uh, what do you do now? Well, you're going to have to deal with the fact that you've got an Israel lobby in America that has a huge impact on you know whether you become president or become president again. Mm. You've got major ties between the Saudi royal family and the Carlyle Group, the biggest kind of dark, nasty investment organisation in the world where both Bush Senior, Bush Junior and half the Saudi royal family are members of the Carlyle Group. So you've got some monumental problems at home if you try and do anything. Mm. But first of all, if you can work out how by moving away from oil you can start changing the dynamics and how through technology transfer of you know just giving the Iranians and the Saudis and the Israelis technology to solve energy problems. So you're saying engineers like me that are into promoting hydrogen are part of the solution? I would say so because <laughs> the Israelis have had to do everything they've done without cheap energy. Mm. Now with cheap energy would it give them a bit more freedom but part of it is again to say you know, there's such an arms build up in this region there has been for so long now and it's going to be very slow to reduce that but if people can have safer, better lives. So part of the thing would be to say, all right, enough is enough. Let's just build an island and call it Palestine. Is it their traditional homeland? No, but the Israelis aren't going to bend. But if we get the globe together and all bear the cost, we can make an, an autonomous state. There's a beginning. There's a genuine thing that changes the dynamics of the region. Mm. So yeah, I, I would actually start with an island and go from there. Mm. <laughs> well... Seems like a decent place to end. Thank you very much for demystifying the Arab world, David. Yeah, it's it's a very potted history, but the fact that at the end of it last time, two Iranian postgrads went, that makes more sense than anything I learned at home. <laughs> I, I was kind of happy. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you very much for your questions, Derek Abbott. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, 
please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Thank you.